Would you join me this morning, Matthew chapter 5 again? Um, if you've not been with us for a while or maybe new, uh, we are going through the book of Matthew. We began back in January and we're in chapter 5. And I don't know about you guys, but I have found Matthew 5 uh, to be very enlightening, very challenging. Um, I'll go ahead and confess that our text today is probably not a goosebump style sermon, all right? Uh, but nevertheless, it is still the Word of God. And uh, so I'm not apologizing for the text. I'm just saying uh, one of the good things as we're talking about expositional preaching and going through and just letting, what does the text say? Uh, the text determines each week where we're going to go. I literally said last week, I don't know where verses 21 to 48 are going to take us. Uh, I have an idea where verses 21 to 26 will take us this morning. But we always just want to let the Word of God decide what He wants to say to us. That way we don't have an agenda. And so with that in mind, uh, we are now in Matthew 5. And I want to back up just to get a, a little bit of context. We haven't done this each week. Uh, but we'll back up to verse 17 and we'll read all the way to 26. Because last week, if you were here, we hit verses 17 through 20. And then you already see from your handout what today uh, verses 21 to 26 will be about. So let's get a little context as we uh, read a broader portion of Scripture. Verse 17, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He has covered the Beatitudes, uh, those that are happy, who are in the good place of life. These are the people that have the good life, very different than what we would have said who has the good life. And then he comes down and says that Christians are the salt, not Christians can be, should be. We are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. And then verse 17, Jesus says the following to his disciples. Do not think. And again, as we pointed out last week, that means do not think for even a minute. That's what Christ is saying. And the reason he's saying this is because he's going to be charged with some things. He knows what his teaching and his lifestyle is going to cause. And so he's kind of warning, preparing his followers, his disciples. Verse 17, I'm not harming it by saying, Do not think for even a minute that I have come to abolish the law, to destroy it like you would destroy and blow up a building. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And so that's very clear. Jesus is talking about the whole of what we call the Old Testament. He's not talking about the traditions. He's going to destroy some of their traditions. He's not talking about just the first five books of the Old Testament. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. That was the Bible that the Jews had at that time. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice he does not say, I have come to keep the law and the prophets. I've come to obey the law and the prophets. I've come to do the law and the prophets. No much stronger word. Christ says, I've come to fulfill them. For truly, here's that, the amen. Let it be so. It will be so. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, this is a real event that's coming, has not happened yet, until this version of heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a jot. So last week we talked about we believe in the verbal. Literally every word of God in its original form was spoken by God. The word of God, the scriptures, every word. But Christ takes it further than that. He says, I've not come to destroy it. I'm here to tell you this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, the small, not just the smallest words, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and not just the smallest letter, the smallest marking to make any of the letters. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
I've come to fulfill it. It will all be accomplished before heaven and earth pass. Therefore, so based on that, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, well, this isn't the really important part of the Old Testament. We're just going to kind of alter our thinking of this. No, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I got to tell you, as we talked Wednesday night about expositional preaching and how it will challenge your theology, I had to confess to them about how often as you're going through scriptures, preaching through, Jeff, uh, you've been reading the Bible for a while. You've been saved since you were nine, called to preach at age 12. How often do you read it and it challenges your theology? Last week's text challenged my theology. I had to really think and compare. How do these words of Christ compare with what we've said in books like Romans? And, and how does it affect things that we know what the book of Galatians says? And, and so we had to just let the Bible stand. And so verse 20, Christ kind of drew that last week's text to a close. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the word exceeds there means like not even close. Exceeds to a degree that the supposed righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is not even close to the righteousness that you must have. Again, in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, not even close, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then this week's text. So having shown that Christ fulfills. It's always been about me. I'm not here to do it, keep it, obey it. I'm here to fulfill the whole meaning. All of the Old Testament sacrifices, they were always pointing to the one sacrifice of Christ. All of the morality that is called for, Christ kept it all. He never broke any of God's commands. He may have broken man's commands, but he never broke any of God's commands. And all of these, some 300 prophecies that the Old Testament kept pointing toward God in the flesh, living perfectly, healing people, teaching like no one ever taught, and then dying a, a, a crucifixion, death, and resurrecting from the dead. 300, we looked at about 25 of those last week. With all of that in mind, Christ says, don't relax it. And I'm going to give you six ways that your teachers have been relaxing the law. And here's one that he deals with this week. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. You've heard that, right? That's in the commandments. You've heard that it was said, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And... Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You've heard this. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, I need to read that again. You've heard it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, to the Gehenna, to the place just to the southwest of Jerusalem where they burned their trash, a cursed place that represented the timeless, endless eternity torments of the wicked Christ says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, wait a minute, that's not what they had thought 
the law had said. And then he adds on top of that. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and for them, that would have been typically an animal sacrifice. They literally have, have traveled to Jerusalem. They've made their way past the court of the Gentiles, past the court of the Jew, Jew, Jewish women, into where, where even the Jewish men could go, and they're about to put their hands and just try to transfer symbolically their sins to the animal, and a priest could go where only the priest could go further inside the temple, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and they remember, I got to tell you, I don't like verse 23. I'll just confess to you, I don't like verse 23. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Right, if I have something against, no, Ugh. Lord, why do you word it this way? This is so hard. So you're bringing your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And a little subtle change even from verse 24 to 25. More ramifications. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. So here you're being dragged to court. I have accusation against that person. They've not made it right. And I need a higher authority. So I'm going to bring them. You're being charged. We're headed toward court. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So you better get it right quickly. You see how we're going to have lots of good goosebumps and lots of tears shed today. And we're going to have, you're like, oh man, I I should have worn my steel toe boots. Yeah, me too. Uh, This has been kind of getting me the last few days. So let's introduce it very quickly. Verses 17 to 20, here's what we learn. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus exalts the law. He's not here to destroy it. He exalts it till heaven and earth pass. Every single part of it, every single part of it will be fulfilled. And then he preserves the law in its own unique fashion. He preserves the law and he says, don't relax it. Don't listen to your teachers that relax the law. It's not like just being discarded and we're just going to grace, grace, grace. We get to live any way we want to. We're out from under the law. Remember we talked about, yes, we're out from under the penalty of the law. But when we really get saved, God's Holy Spirit comes in us. He pours out the love of God in us. And when we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, God never leads us to do anything in opposition to the law. But Jesus is saying the law all along has been about me. I am the fulfiller of the law. So what he's done is he's already been called God with us, Emmanuel. So God in the flesh is Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, I have the authority. I have the authority more than anyone to best interpret the law. And so that's what Christ is going to do. Some have been relaxing the meaning of the law. I'm going to give you six areas. They've been relaxing it. And I'm going to give you six areas to kind of give you a glimpse of what I meant when I said, your righteousness must exceed, not even close, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. One thing I cannot get across strongly enough in my own mind, and I surely am not going to get it across to you, if you'll flip over two or three pages to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, look at the very last two verses of chapter 7. I'm telling you, I, I don't have an appreciation for this, and I surely can't use words to get it across to us today. 
Look at verse 28 of chapter seven. How does the Sermon on the Mount finish? And when Jesus, so Matthew says it, and he would have been there, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Like astonished, like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. What in essence, what they're saying is not just the content. They're not just like impressed. We have never heard so much unique material, so much original material. That's not what they're saying, though that is the case. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, not just the content, but his whole delivery, his whole stance. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's literally the way Jesus is saying what he's saying. I think five times today I'm going to quote other folks. Five times today. And so two or three of those will be larger quotes. Jesus, you say, well, Jesus quotes. He quotes the law, but not to validate his message. He quotes the law so he can clarify the law and correct their wrong teaching. He wants to clarify Moses' teaching and correct their wrong teaching. And so I wrote this thought just literally maybe about an hour and a half ago. He does not quote. I quote, I quote Christ. My only authority to stand here this morning is am I staying true to the text? If I get away from the text, I have no, no authority. Why, would I, why in the world would you listen to me? I don't have any authority. But Christ has all authority. In fact, the book ends that way. Christ says all authority has been given to me. He's claiming it right here. I have the authority, Christ is saying, to tell you. So when he stands up and says, you've heard it said. It has been said. It's been said. And that's the Bible. Or the Bible, the law, and some spin that they've been putting on it. And then Christ says, but I say to you. Now, what are you doing? He doesn't quote to clarify his message. I'm going to quote them to clarify. No, he quotes so that, so that he can clarify and correct their message, to clarify Moses' message and to correct false teaching by the false teachers of the Jews. Back to chapter 5. If you would flip back over there. So let's notice two things, and the first one will be brief, but I have to hit it, so I've kind of... I didn't make a point out of that first thought. I kind of cheated, all right? I want to get this to you. Christ has all authority. He has all authority. So what he's going to tell us, doesn't matter if we like it. I just said a while ago, I'm not real crazy about verse 23, but deal with it, Jeff. Just deal with it. I have to deal with it. But Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, and now that leads us to the second kind of overarching thought before we get to our second point today. And this first one, really, already, I could get up and preach the same point next Sunday as we look at adultery and lust. So here's the thought. Number one, sin springs from our heart. That's the message Christ is trying to give us. Sin is found in the heart. Sin springs forth from the heart. Sin springs from the heart. I've made a statement a few times. I don't know if I've made it here yet. I'll go ahead and do it now. I, I have a theory that if we had lived back at this time period, we would have presumed, we would have had an impression upon us that Jesus, so if we're watching him in Nazareth and watch how he interacts down in Jerusalem and how he just interacts with people, cities, towns, and all those alike, I think that we would have been under impression that Jesus is less strict than the scribes and the Pharisees. He's, he's not quite as strict. Where would we have gotten that impression? 
I'm going to propose to you because Jesus does not play their little game and he does not bother to obey their man-made additions to God's laws. The impression is that he's loose, that he's lax, that he's just not quite as strict. They're really uptight. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're really strict. Jesus seems to be more relaxed. Just not that into into the, the strictness and the do's and the don'ts, but that's not the case. Remember last week... The scribes and the Pharisees were not content to hear a law that is a broad principle. One example we looked at, I'll not go into the depth we did last week, but remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. There's to be no work on the Sabbath day. They couldn't just let the principle ride. They think it has to be spelled out in explicit rules and regulations. And so they say, you are not to carry a burden on the Sabbath. And that's just not enough of itself. Now they have to define what a burden is. And so a dried fig, enough milk that would be for one swallow. I thought, I thought this week as I revisited that. How did they do that on Friday evening? And knowing that they need liquids on Saturday, but can only, by their man, made rules. They can only have enough to, to lift, otherwise they're going to break their own rules. They must have had lots of little what you'd call a shot, right? Just lots of little pre-poured shots because I don't want to be found guilty. Is this too heavy? Dried figs, little pieces of bread, anything more than that. I'm working on the sa- crazy stuff. Jesus comes along like, yeah, I don't, I don't care about your little rules. You're breaking the law. You're a blasphemer. You're anti-law. You're anti-Moses. No, I'm anti-your little man-made stuff. Stop putting me in your little box. I don't play by your little rules. They had rules for hand washings. They're supposed to be hand washings. The Old Testament doesn't get specific. They get real specific. Two one way and three the other. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't play your little games. I think had I lived there and heard them and saw him, I probably thought, yeah, he's not that strict. But that would be wrong. Jesus is more strict than the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because Jesus shows us, this is important, it's a very simple point, God is equally concerned with our thoughts and our feelings. Literally, God is looking into Jeff Bartlett's heart. He's looking into your heart. He's concerned about the thoughts and the feelings on an equal footing with our actions. We very much get caught up in the external action because that's what we see and we think, as long as I'm not doing the actions, I'm okay. And Christ is saying, I do care about the actions. The Father cares about the actions, but I equally am concerned with your thoughts, your feelings, your motives, your intentions. Many, many places, and by the way, they probably thought, boy, this is some new material. We've never heard this. No, it wasn't. I'm reading this week, and I literally ran across this verse, and I'm thinking, well, that kind of fits this message. First Chronicles chapter 28, look at verse 9. It'll be on the screen. David is passing the baton to Solomon. Of all his sons, God has made it clear Solomon is to take his place. David wants to build a temple for God, not just this temporary tabernacle. He wants to like have a more permanent structure. He wants it to be super impressive. Literally, David contributes billions of dollars worth of his own gold and silver and goods. But Solomon's going to build it, and it's now time to pass the torch to Solomon. You're going to be the king now. They're going to re-anoint Solomon and re-declare him, but David gives him a brief charge. Look at verse nine. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Solomon, 
There is a God, and he's been my God. I've known him. I want you to know this God. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, meaning a blameless heart, a pure heart, a complete, sound heart. So know him and serve him and with a, wi- a willing mind. Don't make God like have to twist your arm. Just willingly, and this is one of the things that God loved about David's heart is it was such a willing heart. In essence, David is saying, have a heart like mine. Know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Now, Grace, if you listen right here, here, listen to the middle. For the Lord searches all hearts. This is like constant right now. He's searching all hearts and understands every plan. You say, well, I did this and I had this plan. He really knows the true intention, the true intention of why you said that, why you're planning that, why you did that action. David's telling his son, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then he gives a charge to Solomon. If you'll seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. You'll lose, he loses nothing. If you'll go after the Lord, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll let you go and he'll have nothing to do with you and you'll be sorry. But notice, this isn't new. Christ is saying God cares about the heart. God's looking on the heart. So I'm going to finish this brief point, right? So this is the first of two points by using one of those large quotes. William Barclay, I find him to be helpful again this week. Again, not endorsing everything he writes by no means, but I really find this part helpful because it's so simple. So you read verses 21 and 22 with me. You've heard, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Barclay writes the following, quote, and your note will be at the end of this quote. So here at first, listening, here we go. It was Jesus' teaching that it was not enough not to commit murder. It was Jesus' teaching that it was not enough not to commit murder. The only thing sufficient was never even to wish to commit murder. It was Jesus' teaching that it was not enough not to commit adultery. The only thing sufficient was never even to wish to commit adultery. It may be that we have never struck a man. That's some in here. It may be that we have never struck a man, but who can say that he never wished to strike a man? I just, just want to smack him. Just smack him. You see, I've never hit anybody. But boy, there's been... I just, oh, I just, uh. He continues, it may be that we have never committed adultery. I bet you that's most folks in here the literal physical act. It may be that we've never committed adultery, but who can say that he has never experienced the desire for the, bid, for the forbidden thing? And if you're taking notes, he finishes, it was Jesus' teaching that the thoughts are just as important as the deeds and that it's not enough not to commit a sin. The only thing that is enough is not to wish to commit it. And when you make it that narrow, who can stand before God as judge? We're all found guilty. You may be able to look at the Ten Commandments, 10 out of 613, and say, I've never done that one. I've never actually carried that one out. But who can say, I've never even wished? 
If I was on a deserted island and no one would ever know and there would be no ramifications and even God wouldn't know, who can say they've never wished to break the laws of God? God cares about the heart. What Christ is trying to tell us is sin is in the heart. If sin wasn't in the heart, it wouldn't come out in the action. If there's no lust, then we don't have to worry about adultery. If there's no anger and hatred, then we wouldn't have to worry about murder. It's about the heart. The sin is found first in the heart. Number two, occasions that demand heart evaluation. I thought of this. Man, there's probably a lot, there's lots of ways to outline these six verses we're looking at today. And this one's probably not the best, but it's the one that I feel like the Lord hopefully led me to this week. I needed a way to kind of think, how how are we going to get across these concepts? What's happening in this text? And so I think out of these six verses, there, listen, there are three occasions. And when you find yourself in these three occasions, these are opportunities to really, all right, I need to step back and evaluate my thoughts. I need to evaluate my feelings and I need to evaluate my actions. When these three things happen, this is a good time to check myself out. What are these three occasions? I'm gonna spend the most time, literally the heart of the message, obviously, is this first one. When you find yourself in this position, I wanna encourage us, not just this week because it's fresh in our mind. What if for, for the rest of our life, when we find ourselves in this situation, we really stop to evaluate, why am I having these thoughts and these feelings? Why am I tempted to this action? The first situation is this, when we catch ourselves in anger. When we catch ourselves in anger, that's a great time to stop and evaluate. Why am I feeling this? Why am I thinking these thoughts? What's going on with me? And you may say, Jeff, by looking at the text, it's, what do you mean we need to evaluate? When we catch ourselves in anger, then it's automatically sin. According to what Jesus has laid out here, all anger is sin. But we know that that's not the case. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 26. This is an important verse. The Bible, and I'm not, not taking it out of context. Go back later and read verses before and after, and you'll see that this is accurate here. Paul tells, Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, so he's not contradicting Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ that told Paul to speak this and, and write it down. He says, be angry. So Grace, if you listen to this, be angry and do not sin. So which is it? Be angry or don't sin? Be angry and do not sin, but it continues. This is a longer verse. I regret not putting verse 27 on the screen. I'll read it. Here it is again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we put all of that together, that means be angry. There is a righteous indignation that is the right thing to have. It would be wrong not to have righteous indignation. So be angry, but don't sin, but don't let the sun go down even on righteous anger because if you do, you're giving an open door for the devil to use even good righteous anger to form a root of bitterness in you that can end up leading you into sin. So have it and let it go. Christ had righteous indignation when he cleansed the temple not once but twice. You say, yeah, boy, when he was kind of popping that whip around, I don't know if he was just popping it around or hitting people with it. Jesus would never hit someone. I don't know, guys. He was very upset. His father's house was being made to look like a place of merchandise. People were going home with a bad taste in their mouth. Judaism and Jehovah God must be about money-making scams, and that's what I feel every time I go down to the temple. Jesus hated it, and he made a scourge, and he whipped, and he, he turned over the tables, and he ran them out, and he's very upset and very angry. And so Paul would say, yeah, get angry. It's right. 
So Jeff, what is this talking about? So when we catch ourselves, we need to really evaluate. What's making me angry? What is righteous indignation? Can I just say it kind of simply? When God, his word, his name, his son, his spirit, his people are being attacked and opposed and belittled and torn down, that should make you angry. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. So when I see God's people being attacked, they're doing the right thing, but they're being attacked. I'm going to tell you, that, that makes me angry. And that's a good thing. And I've even experienced that recently. It's just like, and I have to go back at night and like, Lord, help my heart here because I'm getting upset with this. They're being attacked. And it's really, and I think I was right for having righteous indignation. But can we all be honest? Most of our anger is not that. Most of our anger is when you oppose me and mine. And when I feel like you've done something that offends me or frustrates me or embarrasses me, and we can kind of play a little game sometimes, and we can kind of maybe start with some righteous indignation, but when we start pulling the layers back, it's really us that's offended. We feel a personal injury here. I think of the mom or the dad and they got the child in the store and the child keeps disobeying and pulling things off and screaming and all of that. And, and they've said, stop pulling things off and they keep grabbing the cereal boxes and they make a big old mess and finally they yell and scream and blister the little child. Why, right? And, and I'm not going into all that, right? But I wonder, is the anger... You are disobeying the authorities that God has put into your life and it's not going to go well for you in life and you need to be taught to obey the authorities. And for that reason, I'm getting upset. Probably not. You're embarrassing me and I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to start with yelling at you and saying 10 times, if you do that one more time, and then eventually you go crazy on them like, yeah, that's you getting embarrassed. That's you feeling personally injured. Most of our anger is when me and mine are being attacked or the way I think or my agenda and it's not going that way and it's making me mad. Really test ourselves. So we gotta ask ourselves, why am I feeling this anger? Is my anger really a righteous defense of God or is it a unrighteous defense of myself? Most of us fall in the second category. So when we feel ourselves in anger, this is a good time to evaluate. So I'm going to make a statement. You may not agree. I would not die for this statement, okay? But if we took the Ten Commandments and we just kind of wrote them out and we were to pick one or two that you were to say, if God would let me live my whole life not actually having literally in the flesh fulfilled and broken that commandment, I think two would rise to the top. We don't want to break them. But if we could live, Lord, if you'd let me live and not actually literally fulfill these, I think we would put murder at the top of the list because most of us would say, yeah, you go to prison for that and you take someone's life. And Lord, if you'll let me live never having committed murder, and I think the other one would probably be adultery. God, I don't want to physically fulfill and, and actually do the act of murder and actually do the act of adultery. I think that's how we, we would rank those as like number one and two that we don't want, we least want to break those commandments. And here comes Christ. You know what he says? Anger is murder committed in the heart. Now listen very carefully. I'm going to borrow one more, not one more time, a second time from Barclay, and we'll have another one later. He's very helpful here. Catch this. He writes, quote, in Greek, and I don't go there a lot, but he helps us. 
He says in Greek, and that reason we do this because the New Testament was written in Greek. In Greek, there are two words for anger. One was, quote, described as being like the flame which comes from dried straw. Hear that again. So one kind of anger is, quote, described as being like the flame which comes from dried straw. It is the anger which quickly blazes up and which just as quickly dies down, unquote. You know what he's talking about? And then, and then they kind of go on their way. Oh, they had a blow up. That's not the one he's using here. That's bad. That is sinful when it's personal injury that is driving that. But Barclay says the word that Jesus uses here in this text, verses 21, 22, he says the word he uses here was, quote, get it, the long-lived anger. So I'm going to change the emphasis of, of the vowel. The long-lived anger. He says it's the anger of the man who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. And then he says, it's the anger which, which he will not allow to die. Let this sink in. This is what Christ is saying. It's the anger of the man who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. It's the wrath which he will not allow to die. He won't let, do you know how you keep a fire going? You know what you do? When it's about to die out, you know what you do? Yeah, now, all right, now let's get some bigger. Have you ever seen someone who gets upset with something and then they kind of calm down and there it goes, it's gone? But then another person, they get upset with something. It's that long, slow burn and they won't let it go. They just won't let it go. No mercy, no grace, no benefit of the doubt. They just kind of keep in their soul, just kind of, it's about to die down. You're about to get over it. I'm not going to let myself get over it. I'm going to keep looking for more and more things and I'm going to get all tore up inside. Give me, like, what are you doing? That's some of us. This is what Christ is speaking against. And so I'm going to give a note. It's kind of a strong note, and let's see, is this even true? Jesus shocked us in the Beatitudes. That's the blessed life. He shocks us by saying that our righteousness has to greatly exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That sounds impossible. And then here he comes along. And Jesus once again shocked people by saying that angry people deserve punishment. Hear me. Angry people deserve punishment. Wait. Angry people deserve a murderer's punishment. What's Jesus doing? Angry people deserve a murderer's punishment. Now that's a little too strong, you would think. MacArthur helps us here by writing the following. Also convicting. He says, it is possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight. That's some in here. It is possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight to have more of a murderous spirit than a multiple killer. Come on, there goes MacArthur being hyperbolic again. A little over the top, a little exaggerated. This can't be true. He continues. I'm going to re rewind and get it in all together. See if you agree. It is possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight to have more of a murderous spirit than a multiple killer. Many people in the deepest feelings of their hearts have anger and hatred to such a degree that their true desire is for the hated person to be dead. The fact that fear and cowardice 
or lack of opportunity does not permit them to take that person's life, does not diminish their guilt before God, unquote. They want to, but if I'll go to jail, or I want to, but I just don't have the nerve. I wish somebody would do it, though. I wish they would just maybe have a heart attack and die. That would be fine with me. That wouldn't bother me. Like, are you kidding? The fact that they haven't done it doesn't diminish the guilt. And so here's what Christ is saying. The scribes and the Pharisees have kind of been teaching that the extent of the sixth commandment is as long as you don't harm the body, as long as you don't like kill a person's physical body or maybe strongly injure the body, then you're fine. You have maintained the sixth commandment. But here comes Christ and in not so many words says that's not the extent of it. God cares about the whole person. God cares about literally the whole person in your sphere of influence. He cares about their body, their soul, and their spirit, and they're concerned only about the body. And Christ says, no, it's the whole person. I love them. God loves them. Yes, some anger gets so worked up that it commits the physical act of murder. Most doesn't make it that far. Some will stay simmering inside for a little while, but most of it, more times than not, comes out through our words. And you saw that in Christ's text, right? Comes out in the words. It's called a verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. Jeff's going to be modern psychology on us this morning. You know that old sticks and stones may break my bones, words and everything? That's a bunch of bunk. It really is. You may strike somebody and split their skin open or bust their nose and they bleed, but it'll stop bleeding and it'll heal back up. You may strike somebody and actually break a bone, but it can be reset and heal back up. Everybody listen to me. There's something about our words and verbal abuse that can do just as much, if not more damage, than physical injury to a person. And actually, it actually lasts much longer, usually, than physical injury to a person. God cares about the whole person. He really hates the wrong use of language. I want you to join me. Go, hold your spot here. I want you to actually join me. Go to Proverbs chapter 27. I read this years ago, and then Rand Hummel had some thoughts on it, and it just kind of brought to life this word picture that the Bible gives us. So you want to join us in Proverbs 27. Look over there. Proverbs 27. This is very enlightening. So we're talking about verbal abuse and how long it can last, how much damage it can do. Proverbs 27. So Christ is saying, you've heard as long as you don't commit murder, I say if you have anger, and I say if you insult, and I say if you say, thou fool. Look at verse three. Wow. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty. But a fool's provocation means a fool's wrathful anger is heavier than both. Again, a stone is heavy and sand is weighty. But a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming, like an overwhelming flood. I mean, it just swipes you away. Wrath is cruel. Anger is an overwhelming flood. And then apparently, I think the wording here is kind of like ranking who can stand before jealousy. So apparently jealousy is the least controllable. It's the most uncontrollable of this list. So you have wrath, right? 
And then you have anger. Those are horrible in what they do. They get so out of control. They do such devastation. But who has even a chance to stand before jealousy? Jealousy ends up leading to the wrath and the anger and does great damage. But boy, verse 3, a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Do you know what the Lord is saying? Catch this. He's saying when we verbally abuse each other, we're making the person that we're doing that to carry a stone. I brought one with me. I'm going to get my hand dirty. See this? A stone is heavy. I wish I had time to literally pass this through the pews. Not pews, the chairs. I wish I had time and let you feel that. Because parents, the point of this is that when we yell and scream out of the flesh and out of anger at our kids and send them off to school, in essence, you have put this in their backpack and they're going through the day and they're heading off to school. Carry that. We do the same thing with our spouses. Whether it's leaving her there or sending her off there or sending him out into the world and the door closes behind and now got to go face the world and... How's it going? The employees, several teachers here today, you verbally abuse and just spew your anger out all over your students and you're making them carry a stone through class. We do the same thing. Children these days are even doing it to the parents. Parents are going through life carrying a heavy stone. That's what we do. Come pick that up. Man, I really wish I had time. I don't. I've got a white shirt on of all days. Write this down. Some people have even learned how to weaponize their anger. Some have learned how to weaponize their anger. Here's how you know. Just don't make them mad. Just do what they say. But it's not the right thing. Just do it. Just don't make them mad. Because you know we all pay for it when they get mad. And you almost wonder, I think this is what the text is even saying, and there's another place that says so much in the Proverbs. There's like sometimes this intentionality. I'll get my way. If I have to get mad, I'm going to get my way. Okay, okay, okay. We'll do what you say. Jesus says, stop it. I hate it. I didn't kill him. I didn't actually strike him. It's in your heart. Murder's in your heart. You better cut it out. I told you this isn't a feel-good, goosebumpy message, but it's the message for today. Back to Matthew 5. Your tongue has tremendous power. My tongue, for good. Do you, you guys know that God can use you to bring healing into a person's life? God can use you to actually lead someone to the Lord. You can't save them, but God can speak through them, to them through you. But our tongue also has, James tells us this in the book of James, our tongue has tremendous power to inflict damage on people, lasting damage. And so look one more time at verse 22. I told you we would spend the most of our time in, verse, in these first two verses here. So here's, here's a time to evaluate. I'm angry. And I'm going to let it come out in my words, either personally at this person or behind their back in slander. I know that's not the full context here, but this is all implied. I'm going to like tear them down. So verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what is this insult? Some of you have heard it in the King James. I think it has reka. This is really hard for the, the experts to translate. 
And so what I've gleaned from several people this week is the following. Catch it. Insults means, this is important, hear me. Insults means to insult someone's intellectual ability with a tone of contempt. The whole definition is important. Insults, what Christ is saying is, but I say to you, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You're going to answer to the council. What he's saying is, is to insult someone's intellectual ability with a tone of contempt. A man named R.T. France, I read something from him and I had to read it twice. And I'm like, what in the world is he saying? He wrote the following. I think this is my fourth quote maybe today. France writes, quote, the speech is not cited so much as a clearly actionable utterance, but rather as an indication of attitude. That was like the second person who talked about the tone. Also, Barclay had that in there. So again, what's France saying? He says, quote, the speech is cited not so much as clearly actionable utterance, but rather as an indication of attitude. I think what that means is what he's saying is it's not just the, the words themselves that Christ is saying is going to get, have you liable to the council. It's about the tone. France again. It's not just cited as a clearly actionable utterance. Rather, it's an indication of attitude. So here's kind of my thought. I, I don't think this is talking about a couple of guys Young guys, you hear this in our culture today. To their close, close friend. Literally almost as a term of endearment. They would only say it to a close friend. So what do they say? Dude, you're such an idiot. That's not this text. If, if, they, say, if they say idiot, if they, if they say insult to them, and it has to do with intellectual... Dude, if you don't get down, your mom's going to kill you, and I don't want to have to explain why you're... Get down, you're acting like an idiot. That's not, that's not this. He says, what is it? It's spiteful. Hateful. You've heard it. It goes like this. You idiot! How stupid can you be? Well, I'm glad none of us have ever done that. You're so stupid. You're so brainless. I can't believe, do you even have a, you're so thick-headed. Do you even have a brain? You never use it. You just don't think. You are an idiot. How dumb can you be? You see the difference? Dude, you're an idiot. Your mom's going to kill you. And then there's that. That second, you know what Christ is saying? That kills people's spirit. Crushes it. Murders them. This fool word that he also says, it actually means attacking a person's character, calling their character immoral. Now, I know the Old Testament particularly talks about the fool has said in his heart there's no God, and the Proverbs talks multiple times about foolish behavior. Please hear me. I honor, I, I, I'm going to give an account for saying this. I don't think this includes a loving correction of someone trying to work with him saying, listen, your belief, your actions, the Bible says that you're being very foolish and it's going to come with a price. Now, please, I want to help you. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a hateful, contemptuous attack on a person's character, either to their face or running down their good name by your words elsewhere. Stop it. You don't have the right to attack an image bearer of God. So whether it be contemptuously attacking someone's intellectual ability, God gave them that, and you're attacking the maker when you do that. And Jesus is saying, stop it, I care for the whole person. And then on top of that, you don't say, you fool, 
Let the Word of God do the convicting, and if you apply that, but don't you on your own go launching out as though your rules apply to other people and attacking their character as being an immoral person. You don't have the right. Barclay, one more time, puts the two together by saying, quote, the man who speaks in an accent of contempt and the man who destroys another's good name may never have committed a, a, a murder in action, but he is a murderer at heart. And so not in my original thoughts today, and we'll take 60 seconds. It would be a separate message. There's some people, and lots of us are sitting here saying, Jeff, wow. I didn't even know this was in there. This is me. I've got a huge problem. What can we do? If you want on the side, want to jot down some things, just on the side, I'll tell you right now. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Confess, God, this is me. I've got a huge issue here. I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture that, that, if, if, that we should swim in. I don't even have time to, to preach on them, but I'm just going to tell you. Romans 6 and Philippians 4. Romans 6 and Philippians 4. You need to, when you go to Romans 6, you need to look for the words, no, reckon, yield, if you're in King James. And if you're in the ESV, you're looking for the words, know and consider and present. And just go over and over and over that so that you learn anger is not my master. You've been my master. I keep yielding to you, but I'm a child of God. I don't have to obey you. Why am I obeying you? You're not my boss anymore. So that's one of the things. Pray, 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 and then apply truth, truth, truth. I mentioned Philippians 4 because it talks about the right mindset. Pray properly and think properly, and you're going to get victory eventually. You say anything more practical. I mentioned humble. I'll just show it to you. He has a book here. He has them also in two other Topics. This one's called Turn Away Wrath. It is filled with scriptures and how to basically, here's the scripture. Let's kind of translate the scripture. Here's how to apply the scripture in your life. Over and over and over. Whole little booklet. He tells you if it takes a year to get through it, then you take a year to get through it. Apparently he dealt with anger. I know that he did. And so he learned to get victory just from applying truth over and over and over. And that text we saw in Proverbs 27 was one of those. So where do we get a hold of those? If you need one, just come up and say, if I had a friend who had a problem with wrath, uh, how would they get a hold of one of those uh, green books? I got a few in my office for your friend, okay? You let me know if you need those, all right? <laughs> all right, number two. Here we go. Oh, and podcasts. Literally, you know, there's good teaching and preaching out there. You can go and say, you know, uh, can I get some help here? And look those up, and, and man, those are just, just inundate your life, attack the major area of sin very quickly. We gotta hurry. Two more situations that we find ourselves in. This is a good time to evaluate. Number two, when we make an offering to God. When we make an offering to God. Would you look at verse 23? So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When we make an offering. You ready to go after this second point just for a few moments? Do y'all know that Jesus assumes that his people are going to give an offering? Just assumed. You catch that in the tone? 
This isn't the main point, but I, I think it's a side point. You know, when you're giving an offering, in their day, it was a sacrificial animal. In our day, we don't offer animal sacrifices because Christ already died on the cross and fulfilled all of that, so we don't have to do that. But I think he assumes you're going to offer your life to the Lord. You're going to offer a financial offering to the Lord as he blesses you. You're going to offer praise to the Lord. Listen to what I'm saying. When you do that, that's a good time. I'm about to make an offering to the Lord. I need to evaluate what are my thoughts, feelings, and actions before I do this. And so I have a note, and I want to interrupt my own note here. But an offering, so he assumes we're going to give an offering, but an offering is not to be compartmentalized. So a couple of days ago, after I'd already had that note for a couple of days, and it's in the screen in the handout, I'm thinking, Jeff, people don't know what in the world you mean when you say offerings should not be compartmentalized. So let me try to make that, at least in my mind, clear. What do we mean when we say offerings should not be compartmentalized? I'll offer the following. You ready? To turn the switch on. Offerings should not be compartmentalized. Maybe say it like this. What does that compartmentalize mean? Flip switch. Flip a switch is the room is dark. You flip a switch, light. And you're ready to leave. Flip a switch, dark. That's compartmentalized. It's dark, switch, light. Switch off, dark. See, that sounds great. Still don't have a clue what you're talking about. (laughs) To compartmentalize would be in many areas, but one of them would be like you're getting ready to come to Grace View. And you've been living a certain way all week, all weekend, all morning, all right over here, and then walk in the doors, flip switch. Hey, God's good. Amen, brother. Time to praise. Time to give. Time to give my life. And then when you walk out, switch back to dark. I think God's saying, yeah, no, I don't accept that. This is a good time. You say, I want to give my life. I want to offer praise. I want to give a financial offering to the Lord. This is a great time to check the heart, check the life, and evaluate so that I can give this to the Lord from a clean heart, from a pure heart, from a good conscience. I want to give this to the Lord. Here's what Christ is saying in our text. Evaluate your relationships before you bring an offering. And boy, isn't this convicting to all of us this morning. I think what he's saying is, You're giving an offering like you're right with me, but you can't be right with me unless you're, as far as you are able to be, you can't do for them, but as far as you're able to be, you gotta be right with other people before you can be fully right with me. Don't compartmentalize. Verse 24 is really key. Leave your your gift there beside the altar and go. Watch this word. First... Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So if you're sitting here this morning saying, all right, I'm I'm hearing you correctly. Going to do an offering. We remember somebody has something against us. And if our relationships aren't right, then don't get okay. Then I'm not going to do any more praising. I'm not giving my life to God. And I'm sure not giving any more money. That's the takeaway? Yes. No. Withholding peace is not an option to Christ. Withholding the offering is not an option to Christ. What he's saying is, leave the gift there, go make it right. First go do that, and then, after having done the reconciliation, then do this. Why? Because reconciliation, if I'm reading this correctly, outranks an offering. Reconciliation here outranks an offering here. And we can't, like, cover this by just trying to, here's some money, and look, I'm praising, 
and I kind of pseudo give you my life. I'm like, ouch. Why are you having us go through Matthew, Lord? You keep like, you're all in our kitchen and you're rattling all the pots and pans and we like our little lives. Yeah, me too. I've been having to deal with this for days. I have a lot of adjustments to do. Where was Jesus when he said this? Think, think, think. Baptized at the Jordan, out in the wilderness. Then where'd he go? What's the region called? Galilee. Let this sink in. This is inconvenient. If you leave Galilee and go 75, 80 miles and you have your sacrifice, in fact, this lamb is spotless and it's the right age, so you're not going to let it walk. You don't want it to get dirty. You let it ride all the way down there and you're walking along and you do the 75, 80 miles to Jerusalem and you get there and you're about to put and then it dawns on you, oh no, I have a situation You've got to leave that and go 75, 80 miles back, get that right, and then, like, this is super inconvenient. And Christ is like, just obey. Like, oh. Ah. I guess it pays to live closer to Jerusalem, I guess, would be the moral of that story. Go over to Ephesians very quickly. We're, We're heading toward an end in a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, again, we were there earlier for the verse in 26. Ephesians 4, look at verse 1. I therefore, well, I don't have time. I want to hear this. I know you're flipping and kind of listen at the same time. You see verse 1, I therefore, if you were to go back and look at the last two verses of the previous chapter, here's the two dominant themes. Watch. The church is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. God's glorified when we're different. He's going to use this word worthy life. This walk worthy, if we're going to say he's our Lord, then we need to be different. Christians should be different. That's when God is glorified. The second thought in the last two verses of chapter 3 is this word, power, able, ability. I can't do it. That's the way I am. I've been this way all my life. I'm not able to change. You are here for his glory, and he has this power of the Holy Spirit in us that literally can change us from being the angry people we've always been. Verse 1, Ephesians 4, I therefore, because of this glory that we're supposed to be giving to the Lord, that's what the church even exists for, and because that you do have this power that works within us, the Holy Spirit, that was the point. Be strengthened by that. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Christians should be different. How? With all humility. Okay, Jeff, I'll, stop, I'll start thinking really bad about myself. No. Just stop thinking about yourself. That's it. That's it. That's when we get angry. Everything is in relation to me, and that's making me upset because it's embarrassing me, and it's frustrating me, and I'm not getting my way. And my agenda, no grace. Grace for them. Grace for them. Benefit of the doubt for them, but not this person. He says, with all humility and gentleness, not harshness, with patience, long-suffering, patiently enduring, bearing with one another in love. What if we really loved each other? So what's his point of the sentence? He says, I therefore urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 3, eager, like really top priority. Eager to create, no, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Paul is saying, the context is Jews and Gentiles. You say, well, I'm just different from some people, and this is the way I am, and that's the way they are, and we're just different. You're no different. You're not as different as Jews and Gentiles were. And Paul's saying, Jews and Gentile believers, you're all under the same umbrella. The next verse is not on your screen. There is one body of Christ. There's one Holy Spirit. We all have one hope heading to the same heaven. We have one Lord. We have one in the same faith. We all have one baptism by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and there's only one in God and Father of all. And so you need to really strive and work and labor and be eager to maintain the peace and the unity that we already have. So I ask you this morning before we quickly look at the third thought, third thought is to the best of your ability are things right with you and other followers of Christ? Or do we need some humility? Put aside the harshness. Give some grace. Give some benefit of the doubt. Stop fanning the flame. Stop adding more straw. Stop adding kindling and then larger branches of wood to keep the fire going. Back to Matthew 5. Third thing, when should we evaluate? When we find ourselves caught up in anger and when we're about to make an offering. And then number three, look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Third situation, and I'll be brief. When you, have, when you may have wronged someone. Boy, I hope I did not butcher that, but I think this is the point here. When you may have wronged someone. I think Christ is saying you, he's not definitely saying you automatically wrong. But we may have, and you live long enough, you're going to wrong people, and so you're being accused. When we may have wronged someone, I'll not have you raise your hand, because most of us, if we were honest, have to raise our hand. Most of us, very much, when we're accused, I'm in this camp, when we're accused, our default is to defend ourselves. We assume, what do you accuse me of? Because I didn't do it. Christ is saying, step back, and I want you to actually assume that there's a possibility you're guilty of what they're saying against you. And if they are, agree with them on all valid points that they're making. Man, this is a tough sermon. Easier to preach than it is to live, right? So when we're being accused, stop assuming we're not guilty and start agreeing on all valid points. And once you've agreed, watch this, quickly come to terms. Quickly settle it. Quickly make it right. Why? I don't drink wine, but disputes are not like wine. Wine gets better with age. Disputes don't tend to get better with age. They tend to get worse and worse. And so Christ is saying, you've been accused? Get it right quickly. Where are we going? I'm taking you to court. And we're getting ready to get the judge involved because, I, okay, oh, 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 can we talk? Can we just have one more quick session? What are your accusations? You're right, I did that. You're right, I did. But what if I didn't? Okay, let's negotiate. Try to get it right. Don't let it get to the point of getting to the judge. Don't wrong others by being angry. It's sin. When you realize you have sinned, make it right before you get to the judge. Once it gets to the judge, it may not go well for you. John 5 this is where we started the whole service, right? As soon as after the first song. John 5, look at verse 22. John 5, 22, watch what the Bible says. The Father judges no one. This is Jesus. 
I find this very enlightening. The fa- there is going to be a judgment. The Bible says the Father, God the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. If you murder someone, the civil government will judge you. But Christ says when it's all said and done, I will evaluate every person's thoughts and feelings and intentions and their actions. The government is an extension of God to punish murder. So they're going to do that trial. I'm going, to, I'm going to get into all of your thoughts and intentions. I have an understanding of it. And oh, by the way, I have a problem with anger and insults. That's what Christ is saying. And Psalm 139, he knows all of our thoughts. He knows the thoughts you're going to think tomorrow at 213. And so if he knows those thoughts better than you will know them when you get there, then he surely knows every situation of anger that is going on in this room right now. We hide it from each other, but we sure can't hide it from God. Your last note is the following. There is a difference in degree between murder and anger. Yes, there's a difference. Nobody would be thoughtless enough to go out of here today and say, well, okay, murder, anger, Jesus hates both. I guess one of Jeff's messages, if I can't get rid of my anger, I may as well just go kill him. No, you're going to go to jail and you may get capital punishment. Don't walk out. There is a difference between degree, but both equally make us guilty before God. The government will judge that one. Christ is saying, I will judge your thoughts and intentions. So who this morning? Don't raise your hand because none of us could say, oh, thoughts and intentions, I'm pure. We've all sinned. We've all sinned. We've all sinned before a holy God. And God must punish all sin. Our Matthew text finishes where I took you to John. He says, don't let it get to the judge. Lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in, in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Listen carefully and I'll be done. God as the just judge of all the earth, must punish all sin. The good news is, the bad news is, we've all sinned. We've all broken this anger thing at one point or another. We've all had selfish anger. The good news is that God punished our sin by putting it on Jesus Christ on a cross, and God punished our sin, which now leaves the choices as two. Here's the two choices. Number one, you can live this life. You will be judged by Jesus Christ, He will pronounce you guilty. You will admit to him that you have broken his laws. He will condemn you and you will go pay for your sins forever in hell for eternity in a place of torments. That's option one. Why would you do that though since he's already punished our sins on Christ? Option two is this. Very simple. Confess to God because you're going to. It'll be his words and he'll show you all the evidence. Your silence on judgment day will be your speech saying I'm guilty of that. Or you can in this life tell God, God, your word is spoken. I am guilty. I am a sinner. I have done this and many more things. But then put, number two, put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. God, I believe that his death was for me and it was enough. Trust that and then what will happen is God will pronounce you justified and righteous and forgiven and then you'll live with him forever in heaven. You're going to do one or the other. I promise you. You'll admit it in the next life judged, punished forever, or you admit it in this life, Jesus has already been punished and judged. 
You receive forgiveness through him, pronounced forgiven, live forever in heaven with God. Which one do you want to do? It is that simple. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Bow your heads just for a moment. I just finished. Very simply, with two choices. And there may be, there may be one or ten people here this morning that all you need to do, you say, I am so guilty of everything that Jesus just talked about. Well, we all are. We have to have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we've blown it. None of us have that kind of righteousness. So we have to have the righteousness of Christ given to us. And so if you have never had a time in your life where you've done this, I want to invite you to do it right now. Would you just, in your own words, have a conversation with God? Right now, move me to the back. Let me be a mere prompter to you. Talk to God. He hears you. And admit right now in your own words, God, I'm a sinner. You're right. I admit it. But then agree with what God says about Jesus. God's word says he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. His word says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His word says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe means like trust. Put your whole eternity in his hands. God, I don't understand it all, but it sounds like these are strong promises, and so I'm going to take you up on them. God, I have sinned, and I am calling Jesus my Lord. Do it right now. Jesus, you are the Lord. You're my Lord. And then, Father, I receive, I believe your word. Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 6, all that the Father gives him will come to him, and he that comes to him he will not cast out. So he'll never say no, and so hear that and say, God, since you promised, I receive your salvation. I receive Christ's death on the cross as my payment for sin. I receive your forgiveness once and for all. Just before I close in prayer, Christians, you know this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. We never lose our salvation. But we need daily cleansing from daily sins. And so we've heard a very stern passage, a very strict passage, a very convicting passage. And so just before I pray, while our hearts are tender, I want to ask you, what exactly did the Lord speak to you about? Because... If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all our sins. Don't raise your hand just between you and the Lord. Does anyone here need to confess? God, I've got an anger problem. Jesus, you got me today. Is anybody here? Keep it going. Bring God into focus. God, I have a tongue problem. Not only is my anger boiling inside of me and I keep it going or I have these bursts of anger, but God, it comes out in my tongue. God, I need to forsake that. I confess it and I forsake it. And Lord, I'm gonna seek some of these verses and passages and start applying that. And I'm gonna start applying that sin is not my master. 
Somebody need to go further? Just be real specific while we're at it. Let's just be specific. God, I am so guilty. I use my anger as a weapon to make people do what I want them to do. Have my way instead of your way. And God, I'm sorry. Lord, let me just stop it by your power. You've given this power. I don't glorify you when I do that. And you've given this power inside of me and I've not been relying on it by your grace. God, I'm asking you to strongly convict me every time I head down that thought pattern. Is there a relationship that needs reconciled? Before we offer our offerings next week, something need to be done. And then lastly, do we need to maintain our unity with a little more eagerness, with a little more love and a little more humility, more grace? Anybody here? Don't, not to me, but to the Lord. God, I, I have been or I got so upset with one of your children. In my mind, I was attacking their character. Or with my words, I was attacking their character. And at the root of it all, it was my agenda, my frustration, my embarrassment, my way, my injury, me and mine. And Lord, I was just wrong. Father, I pray for this congregation and for me. Lord, let us be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. Father, I pray that we'll be more like Christ. You know that we've all broken this today. We really need some help. God, we need a new heart. We need it to be renewed over and over. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, convict us. The day will not end, but that we will have an opportunity for wrong anger, selfishness. And so, Lord, I pray that you will begin today working on that in a fresh and new way as we confessed it this morning. Lord, let us replace it with so much Love and humility and patience and gentleness and just forbearance, just putting up with some things. And then, Lord, when we can't, to have the courage to speak the truth in love to them and not to someone else. Lord, make us more like Christ, more glorifying to you. For his sake we pray, amen.